Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. So glad to be a part of this growing ecosystem of principled voices engaging in conversations that matter. We don't mind having some fun in the process. I am your host and so glad to be joined by Jessica, the reporter Stone. Jess, how are you feeling? Good, good. Thanks to, to have me back. And it's good to be here and it's good to have our guest here. Yeah. Jessica's playing hurt today, so we really appreciate you. <laughs> and our guest today is Edward Isaac Dover. Isaac is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of the most authoritative account of the Democrats' presidential campaigns of 2020, Battle for the Soul. We'll definitely be talking a lot about that today. If you want to feel like you're in the room with each and every Democratic candidate from the last election, from now VP Kamala Harris, uh, <laughs> learning what her favorite word is, to the infamous lasagna that Elizabeth Warren did not personally make for Bernie Sanders. Uh, from an insider's perspective on each candidate campaign during the pivotal moment between the Nevada and South Carolina primaries to actually one of my favorite parts of the book, and, and we'll get to this, was a post-election, post-January 6th, post-inauguration interview you did with President Biden. This book is just an absolute must read. And this journalist is an absolute gem of a person to join us on our humble program. Edward Isaac Dover, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm well, thanks. I don't know that I can live up to gem of a person, but I will try. I'm glad you enjoyed the book though. <laughs> <laughs> definitely enjoyed the book. We set the bar high here, Isaac. We set the bar high. Yeah, and definitely appreciate you joining us. So in some, let's dive right in. In some ways, this book project started as an assignment when you were in junior high school, but it was assigned to you by someone who loves you very much. Uh, so I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about that person, a little bit more about that assignment. I mean, I'm impressed, Corey, because what this means is that you read the acknowledgments in the book, uh, which <laughs> are after a 500 page book about the four years that we lived through in politics, uh, you you kept going and read the acknowledgments. <laughs> yes, I, I wrote there that uh, one summer uh, when it was in that period between like the end of camp and the beginning of school, and I was complaining to my mom that I uh, I was bored and I didn't have anything to do. And she said to me, well, go write a book. Um, and, um, <laughs> I sort of took that advice to heart and started to try, like I wrote some short stories and things that, then that uh, are, are nowhere near as crazy as what, uh, what I got into in this book. Uh, but uh, that was long before my journalism career was, was going. But yes, as I write in there that uh, I am only, uh, only a couple of years behind deadline. That was um, when I was uh, the summer after seventh grade. Okay. Like so about 20 <laughs> years past deadline. <laughs> a little bit more than that. <laughs> yeah. Now I heard an interesting bit of trivia. I, I was going to ask you about, you had an early interest in both writing and politics from a fairly young age, but this interesting bit of trivia, you, you actually tried politics out in school and you ran against, was it Andrew Yang's campaign manager or something like that? <laughs> 
Yeah, well, the campaign manager for his mayoral campaign. Ah, okay. Um, uh, Yes. Uh, I grew up in New York City in Manhattan uh, and went to a small prep school uh, there. I was the scholarship kid uh, and... Uh, I was, I guess somewhat appropriately, I, I had made it to be secretary of the student council okay. my junior year, and then I tried for the upgrade my senior year, and I had a bunch of attempted witty posters. I'm not even going to call them witty posters. <laughs> uh, and uh, the guy that I was running against uh, was the, it was more popular uh, among our classmates and also made a promise of having a, a free Snapple machine. Uh, oh. or, sorry, not a free Snapple. I'm sorry. I'm messing up the story a little bit. Uh, a, a Snapple machine in the cafeteria that wasn't free, uh, but he, he promised it. I made fun of it. Other people made fun of it. Sure enough, he got the Snapple machine to be there. This is like the problems that exist for Manhattan prep schools in the <laughs> 1990s. Um, so and people needed more Snapple. But the reason why this story came up and what I imagine you heard about it is that I wrote about this in, in uh, relation to Yang's mayoral campaign uh, long enough ago that it seemed at that point that Yang was going to do much better than he ended up doing, uh, but not all that long. It was like six weeks ago at this point. Uh, and when I brought it up to Yang over dinner, he said, oh yeah, universal basic Snapple. That could be a, a good <laughs> um, policy idea. <laughs> That's and it's because of that that I ended up writing about my uh, less illustrious um, past and in, in attempting to win office. Uh, that was my last political campaign as a candidate. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we get to your career, I was curious, you did undergrad at Johns Hopkins, but you did a master's program after that in intellectual history. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what you, know, what you were studying, what that program was, what, uh, what you were studying? Yeah, I had uh, the uh, probably most geeky form of peer pressure as I was finishing my senior <laughs> year, uh, which is that basically everybody that I knew in college, my whole circle of friends, were all applying to PhD programs. And so I decided wow. to apply to a PhD program. Um, and I got into uh, none of the programs that I applied to. Uh, I had applied in philosophy, which I had majored in. At, at Johns Hopkins, the, the way that philosophy was studied is more of like the history of ideas. Uh, but in most places, I had no clue what I was doing. Uh, the way that philosophy is studied in graduate school is analytic philosophy. Uh, and that has a lot to do with why I didn't get in anywhere. Uh, and I got <laughs> a rejection letter from the University of Chicago. This was um, the spring of 2002, so it was, you know, I think not even for graduate school are they sending around mail at this point, Um, but I got a letter, I got a big package, but then it had a rejection letter on the top of it, and it didn't really make sense, Uh, and what the letter then explained was that they had rejected me, but they thought that there was this other master's program that would be interesting to me, um, and they had taken the liberty of sending my application over there. Uh, and then uh, the good news was that I had gotten into this program that I didn't even apply to. Uh, and it was meant to be a pivot program to sort of give you a little bit more grounding going into a future in academia. And I uh, was excited to do it, still under my peer pressure idea that academia was the right way for me to go. And I moved to Chicago and I enrolled and that was still in the aftermath of 9-11, which had hit me pretty hard, even though I didn't know anybody who was killed, thankfully, but as a New Yorker, as somebody who knew a lot, uh, people who'd been in the towers um, and nearby and in the run-up to uh, the Iraq war. 
And I felt very weird being in the remove of academia mm. while that was going on. And uh, by Chicago, uh, University of Chicago is on the quarter system. And so by the end of the second quarter, the end of February, I decided that I didn't want to do anything like this. And I considered dropping out uh, and then realized that I'd already paid in student loans for the whole year. So I might as well finish the degree. Uh, but what I wrote my master's thesis on was Henry David Thoreau's reading of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography and their different ideas of what made for an ideal American. Uh, and uh, so obviously this relates completely to covering the presidential campaign. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm curious what your reaction was then when yeah. you heard uh, Sarah Palin uh, utter the, the, the opening to, was it Walden? In the history of great, the great conversation, the history of big ideas, you know, how uh, Sarah Palin quoting uh, that government is best, which governs least uh, really fits into your whole schema or how the canceling of Mr. Potato Head fits into the the, the great ideas that you studied. Yeah, I mean, I, I have my copy of Walden actually like sitting next to my bookshelf. This wasn't a prop, but um, I would I'd be eager to compare my notes in this from doing it uh, in graduate school. And that was not the first time that I'd read it to, uh, to Governor Palin. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we'd probably come out in the same way. <laughs> yeah, I, I kid, I kid, of course. Um, so after your master's program, how wh what was the line from that program to when you first started writing? It was, uh, you started City Hall in the Capitol for Manhattan yeah. Media. So uh, you've done your research. Um, I moved back to New York. Uh, the nice thing about growing up in New York is that I had a bedroom to stay in, in my mother's apartment uh, for free um, and took advantage of that uh, cushion uh, and started freelancing and doing a bunch of other odd jobs to uh, make some money because freelancing was not paying me that well. I would get about 10 cents a word, which was not enough Whoa. to <laughs> forget about meeting rent. Um, yeah. uh, and I was working for a bunch of community newspapers and uh, doing political coverage for them. I had in college, I should say, interned uh, two summers for the Hill newspaper um, oh. back when I came out once a week. Uh, so I was a mix in college of whether it was like political journalism or academia, but like in that senior year period, that's when I, the peer pressure overtook me uh, to think that academia was the way to go. Um, again, the, the, the most geeky uh, peer pressure that could be. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, and I used those clips that I had had from the Hill to get a couple of freelance things and then was hired on staff uh, by uh, this uh, small company of community newspapers. And in the spring of 2006, the president of the company uh, who had worked for the company that started the Hill said to me, oh, I always had this idea that there could be a Hill for New York and we could call it City Hall. And I've had other people try to get it together, but it never worked. Do you wanna give it a shot? And I said, sure. And about five weeks later, I came back to him with a plan for how to do it and how to do it on the cheap. And he was not expecting that. And he told me, okay, like, let's figure out if we can do it. And we launched it and uh, it was called City Hall, covered New York politics and uh, was sort of in the model of the Hill or Politico of like being for uh, people who were political obsessives and mostly in the political world uh, came out at first once a month and then twice a month. Uh, so not at the same frequency. Uh, and then by the beginning of 2008, we had started a sister publication called The Capital, which was about state political news in New York. 
And I did that through 2011 when I uh, moved to Washington to take a job at Politico. I'd be so curious to see what that plan looked like. Was it just about <laughs> nurturing relationships, fostering relationships with people on the at City Hall? No, it was more about like what the features would be for mm. how to do it and, and how how to <laughs> I, I wasn't given a very big budget to work with. Um, and so how to do things on the super cheap with freelancers and interns and, and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then that ultimately led to your gig with uh, Politico uh, before you moved over to the Atlantic in eighth summer. In 2018. Of yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I, I was at Politico for seven years. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, for It started out as an editor and then by uh, basically the beginning of Obama's second term was back to reporting full time and mm. um, covered the, the hell out of the, uh, the Obama second term all the way through the very end. Um, I was actually one of the reporters at the ceremony that Obama did after taking the helicopter away from the inauguration and landing at Andrews. So before he got on Air Force One for that last trip, uh, he did a, a brief right. ceremony. And some that's described in the book what happened there. Um, and I described because I was there. <laughs> yeah. So you were on pool duty that day. I was. And uh, one of the big um, <laughs> discussions that day was that we couldn't figure out how we were going to refer to the former president um, at that point, because it's always in, in pool reports, it's POTUS did this, whatever. I think I remember that pool note because of that discussion. I think you had it out in the open, didn't you? Like, Yeah, the, it, it, it was the, the two the two options were ex POTUS, which um, I thought seemed right, but um, somebody was like, "Oh, you'll make him sound like a superhero." But actually, the the uh, what, what, the the objection was that um, it might seem like X-rated, which I thought was kind of weird. Um, and then there was F POTUS, which um, <laughs> which was four <laughs> Yeah, that one like, got quickly cast to the side. I hope. <laughs> uh, no, but then what? The way that we settled it is that um, the Air Force band was playing at that event and we saw on their music stands that it said f potus and so we oh. said okay well if that's the way the air force is referring to him then that's what we're gonna do <laughs> okay. um but but obviously there was some apprehension about writing f potus yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> potus emeritus or something no not so much it's earned the title for sure yeah Jess, you you were going to ask uh, you were going to ask about yeah you know one of the things that's interesting to me about the choice of topic for this book Isaac is that I feel like we have been drowned as a public and even as journalists in narratives about the Republican Party, Trumpism, the Tea Party before that, um, and so I just wonder if this in any way was a, an attempt to sort of write that in the public discourse to give the publics maybe something they missed out on in terms of what we were missing while we were also fixated on Trump that was going on in the Democratic Party. So like, the story of this book begins on election night 2016 when I was covering the Clinton party, such as it was at the Javits Center in New York. Uh, I had not covered Clinton as a candidate uh, and uh, but I was the expectation was that she was going to win. The expectation was that I would cover her as uh, President Clinton uh, for Politico with the feeling like there would be a lot of um, uh, carryover from the Obama world mm -hmm. to the Clinton world. And so as a reporter, that would make sense to track mm -hmm. that. 
uh, obviously <laughs> didn't uh, work out as anybody was expecting, including I should say Donald Trump was expecting to lose that night. Uh, and uh, as I was leaving the Javits Center to take a train back to Washington in the middle of the night uh, so that I could be in the Rose Garden by the next day for Obama's speech, I started uh, emailing people who worked uh, in the Obama White House. And I just wrote in the subject line, do you have a plan? And didn't put anything in the email. And I sent a bunch of these emails out and only one came back and they then just said, nope. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I started writing a story uh, two, three weeks later that ran in Politico magazine that was about the Democrats in the wilderness. And uh, was, that was the title of it. And it was like how the Democrats think that they might be able to come back from this massive defeat. Uh, and that sparked a bunch of interest among uh, literary agents. Uh, and one of the thoughts that was put to me was that, okay, so tell the whole story of what happened so that it got to that point. So basically what I covered in that magazine article would have been the end of that book. And I said, no, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm a journalist and I want to write like a history and then it'll come out in whatever year in 2018. Who knows what will have changed by then? We need to cover this moment. That was a really on. good decision, don't you think? <laughs> I do think. <laughs> I do say that myself. Um, but I, and, and I said, look, what's going on for the Democrats is, uh, is this massive existential crisis that is uh, going to reverberate in big ways. And basically, if they don't figure it out in time for the 2020 election, that's it. Like there is no more. Like, the, the the dominance of the Republican Party could be extreme, uh, and, and I don't, I'm not saying the party could be extreme, but the dominance could would just be uh, complete. It's hard now, given everything that's happened since and what we saw of the Trump presidency and and uh, and obviously what happened in the 2020 election, to remember just how dire it seemed for the Democrats and just how completely lost they were. And so, basically, what I said to uh, as I was starting to think about this as a book was, no, that magazine article isn't the end of the story. That's the mm -hmm. beginning of the story. And I'm going to uh, try to uh, cover what's going on here. I came up with a couple of different ideas of how to write the book. Um, and none of them were really that compelling to me or that seemed like they were the right way to do it. And then in the spring of 2018, I was thinking about the at that point, mostly done proposal that I had that I didn't love. Um, and I thought like, there are going to be a lot of presidential candidates running and it's not just a lot, it's that they are going to represent different pieces mm -hmm. of the Democratic Party and different factions. And, and yeah. it's going to be a bunch of really interesting people and it's going to be uh, the most uh, diverse field ever, certainly. And there's going to be progressives and they're going to be traditionalists and they're going to be women and younger people and uh, multiple people of color and all these things that were clearly going to be true at that point. I figured then that it would be about 16 um, and um, it got to be 26. Yeah, uh, I see this. Those are the buttons behind me of all yeah. 26 primary campaigns. Um, and uh, and so, that's, so th that's how this became a book that ended up being crafted around the presidential campaign, but it really was about seeing the campaign as the prism to view what was going on in the Democratic Party. And in 2018, when I wrote the proposal that got bought uh, in just around this time, three years ago, 
uh, was it said there that this is going to be the most important election in the history of the country and the craziest. And of course, I didn't know that the pandemic was coming and I didn't know that George Floyd was going to be killed. And I didn't know that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was going to die six days, six weeks before the election. And all of these things were going to be going on. Um, I didn't know that the Iowa caucuses were going to be a meltdown, <laughs> but yeah. it was clear already that there was so much that was on the line that uh, that I wanted to to write it this way and to tell and to really be able to dig deep into what was happening in the Democratic Party, because with no aspersions meant uh, on other campaign books, when you write about a presidential campaign, it often sort of starts uh, as the nomination is wrapping up. And then it becomes like Democrat, Republican, uh, going back and forth and seeing it. This to me was so much more interesting about how what this process was going to be that produced whoever the, the nominee was going to be. Uh, and uh, I I did not know that it would turn out anywhere near like what it did. Obviously, I had a sense that Joe Biden would be a strong candidate. But the original proposal, for example, mentions Pete Buttigieg and says he'd be an interesting person to look at, but does not say like he'd end up being a major character of the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can't always know, right? right. Especially with 26. <laughs> One of the questions I was really curious about is how you did it. I mean, because with, especially with that many candidates, <laughs> I mean, Michael Bennett, like yet with, the, <laughs> does anybody remember that? Like, and yet it feels like you were actually in the room with them. So I would imagine the work was derived from hundreds and hundreds of conversations with hundreds of sources. Is that fair? Is that like how, how many of those sources came from cold calls? How many came from relationships you cultivated during your time of Politico and the Atlantic? How did you do it? Uh, well, look, I was covering the race day to day for the Atlantic, uh, and that meant that I was doing reporting along the way. Uh, and some of the reporting uh, that shows up in the book did show up in articles along the way. Not much of it did, uh, but there is some overlap. Uh, and when there is overlap, then what I've done is sort of taken the reporting apart and put it back together and filled in a lot more context, which I've been able to get uh, since through re-reporting it. Um, I was, uh, <laughs> as I was getting the book contract settled, uh, I reached out to each of the people, uh, the, the sort of press secretary and communications director of each person who I expected to be running for president at that point. And I said, look, I'm going to do this book. <laughs> it's going to come out in the spring of 2021. I'd like you to be involved in it. I'd like to be able to do something that'll be a little bit different here in that I, I don't want to just report it at the end. I want to have the feeling of what it is in the moment uh, as things are going right or things are going wrong or who knows how things are going. And you get that freshness to it. Uh, and so hopefully you'll be involved. Some people were really into that. Some people were not at all into it. Uh, most fell somewhere in the middle and it took some time and they weren't sure whether they could trust me to hold things under what we in journalism call embargo. And I said, look, it's not coming out until spring of 2021. You can, I, I won't use it. And, and you'll know if I use it because uh, and you'll see it in print or you'll see that someone else use it and it's a small world or th that I use it from someone else and it's a small world and uh, and I have essentially a business model here that requires me to keep it under wraps and most people trusted me uh, over time there were a couple who a couple of the campaigns that were uh, adamant that they would not participate until after the election was done uh, 
every one of those campaigns had at least some people on it who were like, yeah, but I can talk to you. Because in journalism, that's how journalism works. People like to talk, thankfully. Uh, and I was tracking everything in a separate notebook, in a separate tape recorder, uh, I guess digital recorder, not tape recorder. Uh, I had a Google Doc that was like um, a day-by-day diary that I was keeping of the race uh, that I would try every day to write at least a couple of sentences of uh, this is something that happened today that was interesting is where I was and uh, this is my take on it right now. Uh, Maybe uh, because it's Google Doc using the powers of technology, I would take photos on my phone for notes and then put them in there that I could then go back to. And so some of the, sometimes when you're reading in the book, a scene and you're like, oh, there's a lot of detail there. (laughs) It's because I'm looking at a photo of it uh, to recreate it. Um, And, uh, or even sometimes a video that I took. And so that all happened, but I was sort of expecting that the nomination race would quiet down, but not be done on Super Tuesday last year, which was March 3rd. And then I would really dig into uh, writing the book and doing the more reporting that I need to do. Obviously, uh, Super Tuesday happened. It basically wrapped up the nomination fight, but almost immediately when led the into pandemic. the pandemic. And it was really hard to do the writing of the book for a couple of months. And uh, then by the summer, I was already moving a little bit uh, more on it again. Uh, and there was a benefit to the pandemic in a weird way in reporting this. And that there are a bunch of people that I talked to who were just sitting at home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. People that I would not have, I think I would not have been able to get otherwise. I'm pretty sure. Uh, high profile people, not everybody who, whom I talked to uh, for the book is identified as having talked to me. Uh, so uh, especially the conversations that were not on the record, but or th- that were on background with with folks. And uh, the, <laughs> there, there would be people that would I would email or email someone that I thought could get me in touch. And then all of a sudden it would be like, yeah, how's Thursday? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's great. And some of it, you know, like the, the, um, the, the, the former prime minister, of Australia, Malcolm Turnbull, who I talked to for the book. I, I don't know, maybe I would have been able to get to him otherwise, but uh, it was about a week after the election, we were on a Zoom uh, sitting you know, and just talking about all this stuff. And that kind of thing happened more than I would have guessed. Yeah. I was just gonna ask Corey, because I, I was curious how the pandemic played, not just into the reporting, but into the, to your perception of the campaign. I mean, there is, there is something to be said for how it affected Biden's candidacy in that he was able to be more effective because he could be more virtual. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And I think importantly, at the beginning of the book, you see a lot of skepticism about Biden from, among other people, Barack Obama, who yeah. says, like, how's this going to work when this guy doesn't really attract rally crowds? And that was a totally justifiable concern. Uh, if you imagine what things would have been like last year of without the pandemic of Biden and Trump going out, Trump would have gotten regularly, you know, multiple times a week, some probably sometimes multiple times a day, crowds of 10,000 or more. I never saw Biden get a crowd more than 6,000. Uh, and that is in the generous count that uh, his campaign put together for his first kickoff event in Philadelphia. It did not feel like there were that many people there, but that's what they said. So we'll stick with it. Uh, <laughs> most, most, of the, uh, most of the events that I covered with Biden were 
couple hundred people at most. And by couple, I mean literally a couple, 200. Uh, and uh, often smaller than that. Uh, the it, It's possible that had he been the nominee that that would have generated the, uh, maybe. But um, it, it meant that that wasn't a focus. The enthusiasm argument back and forth that would have been there wasn't a focus. And also uh, the uh, it gave him the ability to be a little bit better rested, which I think mm -hmm. saved him from uh, a number of the blunders that he was having when he was uh, pretty run down in the, during the primary campaign. And more importantly than any of this, the pandemic changed the conversation around, it wasn't like whose politics do you find more exciting? It was, we're all living through this every day. How, what what does government actually do? And there is uh, toward the end of the book some uh, a focus group uh, or some data from focus groups about uh, Obama Trump voters, people who voted for Obama in 2008 and 2012 and Trump in 2016, who were undecided about Biden versus Trump in 2020. And what the gloss on what they say is that they, they and again these are people who voted for Trump in 16. They look at Trump and they say like I don't like him, but he knows what to do with the economy. And it's not his fault what happened with the pandemic. When we get out of the pandemic, he's probably the one better suited to fix the economy. But I don't think he can get us out of the pandemic. And they look at mm -hmm. Biden and they say, he's a good man, but he doesn't really know what's going on with the economy. And I'm a little freaked out about what's happening with stuff like socialism and defund the police that's coming from the left flank of the party. But we need to get out of the pandemic and I think he can do it. And when you look at an election that was, yes, Biden won by 7 million votes, but between four states combined, 77,000 votes would have given Trump a win in the Electoral College. Those Obama-Trump voters who broke more for Biden than for Trump, that's important. Those people who were in Wisconsin, in the suburbs, who went for Biden, that's part of how he wins this race. And I and so the pandemic absolutely defined what happened in just about every way. And we saw that in the split between, there were split uh, votes where um, one stat you cited was, was it Ilhan Omar? Mm -hmm. uh, where by, her district voted for Biden by 80%, but Omar by 64%. Now that's still a pretty healthy uh, win, but you know, those those votes, the difference between 64 percent and 80 percent is significant. And it makes up those 10,000 votes in one state or 22,000 votes in another state. It's a it's a really good point and in that district. And that's a district that's in Minnesota, which we were told was going to be a swing state. In the end, it wasn't that swingy. It was very solid by the yeah. state. But also importantly, that's the district that George Floyd was killed in. Yeah. And uh, and it had the highest voter turnout in the country. And Ilhan Omar, as I point out in the book, was saying to people that, uh, well, it had the highest voter turnout in the country. That means that people were responding to what I gave them to believe in. But no, you look at the other numbers. And by the way, uh, somebody was trying to track this down for me completely. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't get it. It seems like it wasn't just the highest drop off of any uh, House district in the country from Joe Biden to that House candidate. It seems like it may have been the highest drop off in like the recorded history. Oh, wow. Really? Like, yes, from a presidential. Because usually like, you know, it's a 16 point drop. 16% yeah. of people who voted for Joe Biden didn't vote for Ilhan Omar, voted for someone else, right? Um, you usually don't get that. The coattails may not be huge, but the, the, um, to have that kind of drop off is, it, it, it certainly, uh, 
in the last bunch of election cycles, there hasn't been anything like that. Yeah. You know, one of the other things that struck me is I do remember uh, after Iowa, New Hampshire, and then looking forward to Nevada saying, man, if Biden does really poorly in Nevada, his thing is over. But I didn't realize on every level his can- how close to death his campaign was financial just every on every account and those um what's the there's the chapter the name of the chapter seven days of change history is that 72 hours 72 hours thank you yeah wow because it, because it's uh the south carolina primary is on a saturday and then three days later is super tuesday yeah uh, but yeah look the 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 absolute destruction it seemed of the biden campaign was i was watching it in real time i was there I was you know with him in iowa and in new hampshire and one of the scenes that uh, i just i remember the first time i heard about it uh just like it was searing to me right away uh is that the day of the new hampshire primary the Biden folks know it's going to be really bad for them. And so they decide to leave New Hampshire and go to South Carolina in the hopes of changing the narrative, as they say in the political world. Uh, And Biden stops by a campaign office to say goodbye and thanks to the volunteers who are working there, even though he's about to come in fifth place. And he sees Chris Coons, the senator from Delaware there. He's known Coons for decades and he has somebody go get Coons and bring it backstage. And he's just like completely ashen, mm. knows it's over. And he's saying to Coons, like, I, you know, I did what I was supposed to do. I was the candidate. I would go out there and make speeches and they didn't get the campaign right. And just, I don't know. And he just goes, damn it. Like that. Now, I think you can look at that and say, I'm not sure that Biden did what he was supposed to do in terms of all the speeches. There were a lot of problems with him as a candidate. Um, but he was correct that the campaign apparatus itself was really uh, underwhelming, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was that moment that you track or a couple of days where you track uh, Mayor Pete's reaction to Biden. I think it was. Um, and then there was a speech in New Hampshire where mm-hmm. he was sort of uh, a color commentator, if you will, of the speech. And then by the end of the speech, he said, yeah, that's something along the lines of yeah, now, <laughs> yeah. now you're starting to get it. You know, like he was rooting him on in a way. Well, it, you know, that, that that's one of those moments that uh, Buttigieg's folks had agreed to let me be in the skybox that he had in this arena oh, that's in Manchester cool. uh, to, uh, under the agreement that I wouldn't use it until the spring of 2021 when the book came out. Uh, so uh, it's it was the last of these big events that were throughout the campaign where all the candidates would, would come and speak, you know, the term is cattle call. And it's just like hours and hours of candidates speaking because you had so many of them. Uh, and this was uh, New Hampshire, four days before the primary uh, in an arena that like Elton John has played, you know, like that yeah, kind of a space, yeah. right? Uh, and Biden is on stage and Buttigieg is watching him. And Buttigieg is a very analytic person, obviously. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and he, um, he's watching Biden go uh, and he says, sort of to the air, but sort of to me, says, you know, there he is, one of the greatest political figures of his generation, and he's just walking around lost on stage. Uh, It's not the exact quote, but the exact quote's in the book. Uh, And then Biden starts revving up a little bit at at what he's talking about, and Buttigieg looks at it and he says, oh, that's good. Um, (laughs) 
that's better. Okay, yeah. Uh, and th there's sort of like an, a reassurance that he has uh, that Biden is at least not embarrassing himself. The reason why that moment is in the book is not because I only got, because I think it's interesting, but because it really captured, I think, how most people felt about Biden at that point, which was like, what's going on, man? Yeah. How is this so bad? Um, and yeah. and the, the, the real feeling like it was over. How, um, be, because of that, because there was not a love affair with Joe Biden on the campaign trail and certainly not um, in the electorate at the time, how close did we come to getting Bernie Sanders as the nominee? Really close. Really close. Um, I think that uh, what you see is uh, like the book is 500 pages long, covers four years, but about 150 pages of it are devoted to a month uh, in the campaign. Uh, and so that month is February 3rd was the Iowa caucuses and March 3rd was Super Tuesday. In between, you have the New Hampshire primary. Then a week and a half later, you have the Nevada caucuses, which were February 22nd. And then a week after that, is the South Carolina primary. That week between the Nevada caucuses on, on the 22nd and the South Carolina primary, Bernie Sanders was going to be the nominee. Mm. He just was. He had come very, very close to winning in Iowa, as people will say that they did win technically, but they didn't. Um, uh, the, uh, he'd won New Hampshire and had won by a smaller margin than he did against Hillary Clinton in 2016, but had staved off what they thought was uh, judge coming in there. Everybody else was falling apart, uh, including Biden. Uh, and uh, also importantly for Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, who was doing just as badly as Joe Biden was doing. It's important to remember Elizabeth Warren right. was one, one place ahead of him. So uh, Biden came in fourth in Iowa, Warren came in third in Iowa. Uh, Biden came in fifth in New Hampshire, Warren came in third or fourth in New Hampshire. Uh, and uh, then they go to Nevada and Sanders wins by a lot, by like a 20 point margin. Biden, it ends up being enough that Biden's second place finish that he can turn that into the turnaround of his campaign. But it didn't seem like it at that moment. And most people were getting quickly resigned to the fact that they, that Sanders was going to be the nominee if they didn't like him, or getting really excited about the fact that he was actually going to be the nominee uh, if they did like him. And what that meant was that I, I do think that part of how Biden so quickly turns it around between South Carolina and Super Tuesday is because there was such apprehension among so many people about Sanders being the nominee. And if yeah. Sanders hadn't been the the other option there, that you probably wouldn't have seen such a rush of support to Biden or to, to any of the other candidates. And if it had been Elizabeth Warren who'd done so well in those, if she had had the showing that Sanders had had, then she probably would have been the nominee, for example. So is that sort of the genesis of, of where Biden and his team learned to manage that tension between the progressive wing and playing to the moderates, but still governing with some progressive ideals? Well, some of this is personality, right? Joe Biden has a stronger personal relationship with Bernie Sanders than most people do, um, and certainly than Hillary Clinton did. Uh, and that helped a lot. Bernie Sanders was always reluctant to attack Biden and to make trouble for him. Uh, but it was also uh, one of the things I track in the book is the Though it seemed to most people that Barack Obama had kind of disappeared from the scene, uh, it, truthfully, he was doing a lot of work behind the scenes to uh, try to prepare the Democratic Party for 
what would come in the 2020 election. And a huge piece of that was working out a different relationship with Bernie Sanders, uh, that whom he had been very dismissive of in 2016, uh, but wanted to bring him into the fold, either because Sanders would be the nominee and Democrats needed to figure out how to make that work, or because Sanders wouldn't be the nominee, but would do well enough that he would have a significant portion of voters uh, in a way that needed to be there for whoever the nominee would be, as they weren't for Hillary Clinton. And so Obama builds up that relationship with Sanders. Biden has a good relationship with Sanders. Uh, Sanders, I think also importantly to his credit in uh, many ways, uh, because he was an ambitious guy who wanted to be president and was frustrated with what happened that he didn't get to be the nominee either time, uh, looked at Trump's presidency and decided that needs to end. uh, And I'm gonna throw myself into making sure that it ends. And so all these things come together as Obama encourages Biden to have these task forces uh, that uh, bring together policy proposals from the Sanders wing of the party and the Biden wing of the party. Uh, the best example of it is uh, the one about climate change. Had Its two co-chairs were John Kerry, obviously, as establishment a figure in the Democratic Party as could be. Uh, And the other co-chair was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, very close to Bernie Mm -hmm. Sanders personally and politically. Uh, And the new uh, wing of uh, the Democratic Party that's rising. Uh, And so that came together, they put together these, this wasn't just like uh, blue ribbon commissions, they actually put together a lot of proposals that have become uh, a roadmap for the, the Biden administration. And, uh, and all of that helped bring Sanders into a much closer relationship with Biden than they ever have with Clinton during the campaign and much more supportive relationship. And obviously, again, we're looking at small margins in, in this race in a lot of ways. And right. those sorts of things helped a lot. So uh, I found that quote, just so we have it uh, for the record, if you will. Um, Buttigieg says, one of the great political figures of our time, he said with a shoulder shrugging sadness, and he's running on autopilot, his hand in his pocket wandering around, which by the way, I've read a lot of screenplays in my time. You write very filmically, it's it's beautiful. Uh, (laughs) And then you're quoting Biden there, I'll be damned, Biden said as he tried to summon some anger to grab the crowd. That's good, Buttigieg said, still grating. I'll be damned if I'm going to lose the country. Uh, Biden said, discovering a little more energy. That's better, but Buttigieg said. Biden's aides were already planning when to pull him out of the out of the state. Um, but uh, I, I wanted to ask you about Kamala Harris. You say about her at one point, she takes in information from the people she trusts, cross-examines, Socratizes. Then she makes a judgment, except when she doesn't, having gotten caught in her own internal web of indecisions. So I have two questions about this. Again, not only how do you get such in-depth in-depth information, but in-depth enough to make this kind of analysis. And then it seems like the one you portrayed of uh, Kamala's decision to run with a number of close friends, relatives, advisors in the room, uh, Mark Elias making the case for her running, her brother-in-law, who's also a very respected, accomplished attorney making the case against. These types of scenes seem to represent both a strength for her and what seems to come natural given her her experience as, a, as an attorney, but it also represents uh, or maybe lays the groundwork of what became a weakness, the infighting of her campaign at times, the bad decision-making. Um, is that all fair to say? Yes, 
<laughs> um, that's the short answer. Uh, but, uh, take different parts of your questions as uh, I remember them. Uh, how do I get this stuff? Well, look, uh, I spent a lot of time on the trail with her. I've had a lot of conversations with her over reporting some of them on the record, some of them not. Um, I have talked to a lot of people who have spent a lot of time talking to her too. Uh, and obviously we're in the room for uh, a lot of these things. Uh, <laughs> when you have a meeting like that one about her deciding to run for president in which there were a dozen people in the room, you know, you can assemble <laughs> a pretty good account uh, yeah. of what happened. Uh, and sometimes people have memories of things that happened that aren't right. Uh, mm. And the, or that are like, oh, that actually happened three weeks before. Or uh, and you get as many of the conversations in the room as you can uh, and see what lines up and what doesn't and try to figure out why what doesn't line up didn't line up. And, uh, and that's what I tried to do in these. Uh, as for Harris, she, I, we were sitting uh, in Iowa, in Ames, Iowa, at a law firm office on her first trip to the state in October of 2018. And I said to her, like, it just seems like the way you think about everything is as a prosecutor, is as a lawyer. And she was like, oh, this feels like I'm like uh, on the couch, like doing therapy. <laughs> I was like, like, isn't that right? Like you do, like everything is about the evidence and it's about the, the argument back and forth, back and forth. And she eventually was like, yeah, I guess that's right. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I think that, um, you see in the way that that meeting went, as you said, her strengths and her weaknesses, right? Uh, and the lawyerly part of her coming across, because when they sit after they've done this whole two-day session of uh, this is what the fundraising plan would be, this is what campaign travel, would be, they're trying to like give her like what this would be to run for president. Uh, and they decide they're gonna end it with moot court. And so, as you say, Mark Elias makes a speech for running, the house of our democracy is on fire. We need you in this moment. Um, and uh, everybody's like, oh, great, okay. Uh, and then they, Tony West, her brother-in-law, uh, her sister Maya's husband, uh, who had been the number three in the Justice Department uh, under Obama in the second term, they, they turned to him to do the don't run argument uh, because he's family, so he can really rip into her. And he did. Uh, and he said, you haven't been in the Senate long enough, and who do you think you are to run? And then, uh, and then he hits on uh, what they knew would be a weakness and turned out to be a real weakness and, and vulnerability in the campaign, which is her record as a prosecutor and whether she had uh, somehow not done right by black uh, people yeah. by you know, locking too many of them up in prison when she was DA and, or, and attorney general. And, um, and he says, yeah, how, how could you do this? Uh, and she sits back in her chair uh, and takes us all in and she says, yeah, I've locked some motherfuckers up. Uh, <laughs> and as a point out in the book, she likes that word. Um, she will correct the pronunciation from people if they put too many uh, if put the R's in the word. Um, but uh, what, what I think is interesting about that moment also is that one of her aides turns to her and says, if you say it that way, you're going to be the president of the United States. Hell yeah. Which, uh, which is not 
like go around saying motherfucker all the time. What he was, what he meant was like, if you own it, Right. And you are not on defense about it, and you can have that kind of boldness and confidence in what you in what your record was and who you are. Then that will work out well for people. And and I think that there's something to that because part of what Harris struggles with is people who feel like she gets a little equivocating about stuff. Yeah, and doesn't take a firm position. And sh- there are a lot of reasons that go into that. And I've written about them uh, both in the book and uh, since and in the, uh, an article I wrote for The Atlantic about her beginning of her time as vice president. And, and some of it is just the way that she is. But it certainly is the case that it tends to work out better for politicians when they are bold and confident and seem to own things. Uh, you look at people who, for example, were really drawn to John McCain's campaign, even if they didn't agree with him politically. Yeah. Um, whether uh, and they're like, I just like he says what he thinks, and he yeah. really hits him back down. And that that is the way that McCain was. And you know, as a reporter, John McCain was always a great interview. He'd stand in the Senate hallway and you know, grab him, and he would like rip into whatever he felt like because he was just like, that's who I am. That's always what I am. Just, just to underscore that point, if you remember back to the Hillary's campaign in 2008 against Obama, one of the moments when she did best is when she finally had a moment where she, it didn't look like she practiced the line in the mirror, where she broke down about why she wanted to be president. And she had yeah. this authentic moment. And, you know, her, her, but then she went back to the, you know, I rehearsed everything in the mirror, you know, with Hillary. Yeah. And, and people respond to that fairly or not fairly. It, yeah. It's part of the way that it goes. And, um, you know, I think it's funny sometimes that people say that, like, Donald Trump was so authentic when, of course, like, I mean, Donald Trump, everything about him seems like a little not authentic, right? Yeah. Like, uh, down to, like, whatever's going on with his hair, right? Uh, but he does have a way of channeling this feeling that people have, that right. anger, the yeah. frustration that people have that's real and that connects with who they are. And so it doesn't matter that, yes, he grew up uh, wealthy and li- <laughs> literally lived in a tower on Fifth Avenue. There, he, he scans as authentic to folks because of that. Right, right. So that brings up the recent political reporting about uh, about Kamala Harris and all these complaints about how she manages. Is that is that consistent with what you saw uh, on the campaign trail with her, or is that just a bunch of sort of complaining employees, uh, maybe generationally, don't want to work as hard as they they need to in a White House? <laughs> I mean, I think I think it's all of the above. Uh, uh, she. I noted in the story that I wrote uh, in May about her that she came into office as vice president after 18 years as an elected official, district attorney, attorney general, senator, presidential candidate, all those things along the way. And she had, uh, depending on how you count, but I think somewhere between two and five people who had worked for her for more than a year. Oh, wow. And she has, Corey, as you were mentioning, she the, the, there is a pattern of people feeling uh, unhappy on staff with her. Uh, it's a real thing that's part of her record uh, and that ca- comes up again and again. And when that is the case over and over, office to office, uh, then some of that does come from uh, who, you know, what's the cons- consistent thing there? It seems sure. to be her. Now, again, some of it is unfair, 
Yeah. Uh, and in the article that I wrote about her in the Atlantic in May, uh, I, I quoted a woman named uh, Kim Fox, who's the state's attorney in Cook County, uh, essentially the Chicago DA, who's a black woman like Kamala Harris in San Francisco is the first black woman to be elected DA there. And Harris uh, mentors her and, and had been mentoring her uh, certainly before she was vice president. And Fox said to me, and we spend a lot of time in our politics talking about people who break the glass ceilings, but we don't spend as much yeah. time thinking about the cuts that you get on your head along the way. Mm. Yeah. I did wonder that because you've written about Tina and there's been some writing about Tina Flournoy being in the same mold of sort of, she's trying to protect the boss and, and that black women, I think Simone Sanders is on the record saying black women don't get the same leeway with managing in these tough situations as, uh, as other people do. Yeah. It's a great story. It's called what, Kamala Harris has learned about being vice president in the Atlantic uh, May 19th. So yeah, a lot yeah. of just good juicy details there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know, some of the complaints about Tina Flournoy, her chief of staff, is that like people can't get through to Kamala Harris. And well, like you don't want people to get through to the vice yeah. president all the time. Yeah, right? that and, doesn't and, ring true to me. Donors shouldn't be able to pick up the phone like they picked up with Trump. You know, Sean Hannity should not be able to get a hold of right. Kamala right. Harris at the drop of a hat. Yeah, that's yeah. not how it normally is supposed to work. So the, again, it, it's sort of, and and some of this is also. Yeah, Harris has risen very quickly to be yeah. uh, a state attorney general uh, and certainly to be district attorney. It's a very small operation and people feel I can get to even when she was senator. Uh, it, uh, there were a lot of people who had a lot of access to her. Um, when you're vice president, it's a real different thing. Uh, and she's learning about it and people around her are learning about it. And when I was writing that article, I heard these complaints. They were like, oh, well, you know, she doesn't talk to us anymore. And, <laughs> yeah. and my feeling about a lot of the, uh, some of the complaints were justified and some of them was like, I, you know, guys, she's vice president now. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the campaigns that was run that looked a lot different, that was really well run, and now it was Mayor Pete's, frankly. And, um, and now as the head of, one of the departments he's on the cabinet obviously his executive his expertise if you will is really being tried and and we're seeing that in contrast with kamala harris i was wondering if you noted that on the campaign trail if there was that stark of a difference that you saw on the campaigns themselves and how the candidates were running their campaigns yeah i mean Buttigieg ran a really good campaign uh and that has a lot to do with how a guy who was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, yeah. won the Iowa caucuses, came a lot closer as a track in the book, I think, than anyone realized to being the nominee. Uh, he ran a good campaign. He was a really good candidate, yeah. much better than he was anticipated to be. Um, I remember I went to the, some of this reporting is in uh, the book. I went to Topeka, Kansas with him in March of 2018. Uh, I saw Politico then, and I wrote an article that was like, Pete Buttigieg's plan to run for president. And my editor was like, what the hell is this? Um, and I was like, no, it was like, there's something here. Yeah. <laughs> and anyway, it's this crazy story where we were like walking around outside the Westboro Baptist Church, which is uh, like an extremely yeah. anti-gay organization. Uh, I believe their website is godhatesfags.com or something like that. Like it's yeah. really a, a bad place. Um, and Buttigieg was there because we were visiting 
place called the Equality House, which is purposely right in the view line of the church um, and painted in rainbow colors and is a <laughs> place for gay youth. Um, and Boonjins was there to show support and, you know, to own the Baptists. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, but I have photos on my phone of him uh, in March of 2018. Uh, taking photos of the Westboro Baptist Church on his phone, yeah, uh, and um, and and I, you think of how does it go from that, where they didn't even realize he was outside the church, right? Otherwise, I'm sure they would have come and like yelled at him. Yeah, uh, to a year later, he's taking off, and not even two years later, he won the Iowa caucus. Right. He ran a very tight operation and his and the people that he had in charge of the campaign were were really good at it. Um, and ha- you just look at sort of the, the proof in the pudding, right? That Harris had to drop out uh, right after Thanksgiving of 2019 because her campaign ran out of money. Mm-hmm. And because her campaign had that moment in the first debate where she uh, takes Biden on and, and roughs him up a lot and shoots up in the polls. Uh, and by a week and a half later, is plummeting and she never ever recovered from it. Whereas Buttigieg was on a steady, almost, there were a couple bumps along the way, but was on a pretty steady rise throughout the entire campaign. That is because they were different as candidates and they were different uh, in their campaign operations. Uh, Obviously uh, it worked out a little bit better for Harris than it did for Buttigieg in the end. Buttigieg is really enjoying being transportation secretary, but like there's a scene at the end of the book where I'm standing at the inauguration uh, and uh, I was talking to him right as the motorcades arrived with the Bidens and the the Harris and uh, Harris and Doug Emhoff, and they're standing and waving, and they see them on the big screen. And I said to Buttigieg, "So, like, how's it feel to be here?" Uh, and he said, "Oh, this is the new day dawning that I always said was going to come during the presidential campaign." And I was like, "Yeah, but you thought that you were going to be up there, podium, <laughs> um, and <laughs> and not here as like you're going to be the transportation secretary." And he says again, "It's very Pete Buttigieg way." Well, you know, a lot of things have turned out this year in ways that I. Could expected yeah (laughs) it's perfect something i'd love for you to expound on at one point you compare joe biden's relationship with hunter to trump's relationship with his own father uh and in some ways trump's obsession with hunter led to some pretty pivotal moments in in a way it helped keep biden in the race right yeah i i i think that there it's unquestionable when you look at it uh that there was a real benefit to biden from trump the, the events that led to Trump's first impeachment it was chasing down supposed dirt in Ukraine uh, to attack Biden with uh, and that obviously related to his son's position at uh, that company Burisma. What that did for Biden is it gave people a sense that a Trump was scared of him still when it, nobody thought that Biden was scary at that point. He was doing so terribly in the campaign. Uh, it also forced a lot of Democrats to kind of rally behind Biden in ways that I can tell you from, again, covering this in the moment, they were really uncomfortable with. They were like, no, no, I want to promote <laughs> my campaign. But now I have to issue a statement like denouncing Trump for attacking Biden. And it it gave them a, a boost in fundraising. It was important in so many ways. The point that you make, though, about the relationship between sons and fathers there, I do think that, you know, Donald Trump clearly did not have a functional relationship with his father, and he doesn't have a functional relationship with his sons. Uh, in the, the, they're, they are working all together in a family business, but this is not 
like a lovey hugs and um, hanging out kind of family. The Bidens are really that kind of family. Yeah. Uh, whatever else you might want to say about them, they, they talk about them as a clan because that's the way they function. Uh, like, for example, uh, one of the things that I think about a lot is I covered uh, Bo Biden's funeral and I was one of the pool reporters uh, that was and my position was outside the church. Uh, so what I was there as the hearse pulled up with Bo Biden's body in it. And then you had this absolutely chilling scene of, and it came sort of around a corner, and they, Joe Biden walking with the entire family. Mm. And they all just marched in together. That just wouldn't happen that way for the Trumps. And, you know, maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing about the Trumps. I'll leave that to other people to decide. But I think it was really hard for Trump to understand how Joe Biden would a, have that kind of like super loving relationship that he has with Hunter that's always forgiving Hunter, no matter what, even when there are things that are like, I don't know, Hunter, what are you up to? Um, and B, that he wouldn't, that, that Joe Biden wouldn't be involved in Hunter Biden's business. Because of course, Donald Trump is involved in Donald Trump Jr.'s and Eric Jr. Uh, or in Eric Trump's business, uh, because it's the same business. They all know what's going on. And Donald Trump likes to be in the middle of all of it. Uh, and in fact, what I described Biden as having this like willful naivete about what Hunter was doing. Hunter Biden clearly trafficked on his father's name a lot over the course of his life. Uh, and Joe Biden would always say like, well, I hope you know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, or like, okay, Hunter, you go do that. I'm going to be over here. And he really wasn't involved in any way that anyone has been able to find. And I looked and I, you know, all, yes. I, I think the hard part for me as both a journalist and a voter and a viewer of this though, uh, Isaac, is as how, is I love my children too, but I believe in accountability. And mm -hmm. I don't think, I, I just question the judgment of a person who can be that willfully naive when his son is repeatedly doing these things. I mean, yes, he's an addict. You know, there's a very emotional interview with 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 President Biden about that, with Hunter Biden. But at what point do you say, no, you actually have to step up to the plate and take responsibility for what you did. And me as your dad, I need to take some responsibility for, for removing you from the temptation or giving you some distance from the family name. I think it really... It speaks to his judgment, and I can see I can see the soft side of him there. But I also think, as a leader, you have to be able to you have to be able to make decisions based on facts, not feelings. Yeah, and look, there's a there's a moment in the book where, in the summer of 2019, Hunter Biden is like shopping around a television show. Yeah, ludicrous, uh, right? And <laughs> and he's meeting with producers with his his current wife his, and then his new wife. Uh, they had just gotten married and had a baby. Uh, I think she was pregnant at that point already. Yes. Um, and one of the producers says to him, like, your father know what you're doing? And Hunter Biden says, like, oh, yeah, he know, he's fine with all this. Right? Like, it's just like, and, and so this is also about Hunter's behavior. I think what you're saying is a fair critique of Joe Biden and one that uh, that other people have made of him, including, by the way, Elizabeth Warren. It was a moment, I don't get into this in the book, there were, I, this book could have been 30,000 pages long, probably. <laughs> um, but there was a moment where, when all this stuff was coming out, uh, of what Trump had pursued in, in Ukraine, that Warren was asked whether she would ever allow her son uh, or any child to be anywhere near it or anybody in her administration. She was like, absolutely not. Of yeah. course not. Right. Because whatever, to her, the, the argument was like, 
was Trump doing the wrong thing looking for dirt in Ukraine? Yes. Like, is it terrible that Hunter Biden has all the problems that he has? Yes. But like, this is not the way that government should function. And uh, so it seems like you would have agreed with that uh, way of thinking about things. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I just I think I think sort of, sort of the way you describe the the way that that Trump came after him, it seems like it almost gave Joe Biden a pass on that, right? Because it 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 changed the the focus from yeah. hey, do you take responsibility for how how your kids trade on your name? To oh gosh, we all gotta you know protect Hunter because he's under attack from the opponent. And of course, that you know as you described, that's giving the the other Democratic candidates more you know more reason to just kind of close ranks. Yeah, I think that that's right. One of the most touching moments that you recount is a text that um, Joe Biden, a text chain between Hunter and Joe Biden uh, when Hunter is in rehab, I think. And it really rang true. Uh, I, you know, I don't know if you know this, Jess, but my uh, one of my kids is in recovery and really struggled. Um, and, uh, you know, there are moments when uh, the only the only thing that you can definitively declare um, is your love for your child. You know, you, you can't uh, trying to control a child who's in, who's in addiction. And mm-hmm. even in some ways when they're just in the waking hours of recovery, it, it, trying to control that child is like trying to put your hand up against a tidal wave. You, you, and, and to the choices that one has to make, you, you're constantly having to make these choose between a bunch of terrible options, but what you can't say, and I think uh, Joe's text ended with, you know, I love you, son, or, or, you know, something just got right down to, this is all I can do. Love my son. You yeah. Know? And, and look, Corey, remember that the, that text exchange, the way that I have it is because it ran in the New York post because mm-hmm. it was from what we, uh, what Rudy Giuliani was claiming was a laptop, but has never produced as a laptop it seems likely that it's actually hacked material, but it's authentic that tech I checked and like that is yeah. actually a text between Joe and Hunter Biden. But you know, as you, you speak about your own experience with it, it makes me think of the moment that I recount happening in that first debate, the debate that they had when we didn't know that Trump was sick and then got, then two, two days later uh, announced that he had COVID and went into the hospital. Um, but Biden, Trump is attacking Hunter and Bo, and Biden brings up Bo and says, how could you go after, you know, say that people who served in the military are suckers and losers. And it's yeah. like this jumble. I actually had, to, I went back and watched the video of it and read the transcripts out a bunch of times to make sure that I was able to throw this through because they're like talking over each other as happens in debates. Uh, and then, and Trump says like, oh, I don't know anything about Bo. I know about Hunter. And he says a couple of things that are just like crazy yeah. conspiracy theories. Um, and then Biden speaks up for Hunter yep. and says, yeah. And, and talks about addiction in this really raw way, which was, you know, during the debate prep, the, they knew that Trump was going to go after Hunter. They talked about what to do. And Biden said, had thought that he would say something. But the way that it came out of him in that moment was not, they hadn't rehearsed that line. And it comes yeah. out of him in this way. And uh, maybe for you, I know for a lot of people, whether they have addiction in their lives or not, uh, or, or uh, people in recovery in their lives or not, 
it was a really searing moment and this connection that people had. And I do think that part of Joe Biden's strength uh, as a political figure is that people connect with him. And they, in a way, you know, and people close to Biden have said this to me that part of what happened that really in this really inadvertently perverse way helped him is that when Bo died in the spring of 2015, it made people connect with Joe Biden. It made them feel this closeness to him that was real. Uh, and, and I think that Hunter was always trouble on that front. And then in that moment on the debate stage, they connect with Hunter and they connect with Joe through Hunter. And that gives him this ability that goes beyond politics, right? A person who ran for president said to me, you know, with any other job in politics, city council, governor, senator, whatever, it's it's always like a job application. You know, you turn your resume, what have you done? Okay, you did this, we think you can do it. Okay, you were a state senator or you ran a business. Uh, with president, it's always, how do you feel, right? And you see that. That's why people in the end voted for Joe Biden. They felt a way about Biden. They felt a way about Trump, felt a way about the country went to Biden. That happened in 2016, went to Trump. In 12 and eight for Obama, you know, go all the way back. It's always what it is. It's something much more visceral about this. And that I think has something to do with why we end up talking about things like, you know, the the Eisenhower era um, or the Kennedy years. It becomes something much more about who we are. Or certainly we'll talk about the Trump years, you know, and, and for a long time to come. Yeah. You look at speaking of, of the Trump years, do you think or within the context of this campaign, this race, do you think there was one moment when Trump began to seal his own fate? Yeah, I think it was when he said um, he can inject some disinfectant. Oh, um, right. Um, and I think that the, the follow up to that was when he got sick. Um, OK, uh, because uh, as I was saying, the like covid was this defining thing of uh, people thinking what government can do and what could happen. And, you know, to say, could we maybe inject disinfectant, like how he said in that bumbling way, uh, people responded to it and said like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. And is he just like freelancing? Like, you know, and, and remember where we were in the pandemic at that point. Uh, and uh, and Trump knew it too. If you remember, he was doing daily briefings and then suddenly after that, no more daily briefings. <laughs> You're right, right. Um, and, and then when he got sick, that was important too, because um, I think it reinforced the feeling of like, uh, so he can't even protect himself. Yeah. How is he going to protect all of us? Importantly, for the Biden campaign, it was a real concern that Biden not get sick because they thought that that would reinforce that he was old or infirm or whatever. Uh, and he didn't get sick. And, and I was covering the Biden campaign. There were a lot of precautions taken all the time. I was never worried about my health. Uh, and the people whom I knew who were covering the White House or the Trump campaign were completely worried about their health all the time. Yeah. Uh, and and that ended up, as inevitably will happen, seeping into the coverage of what was going on. Funny. I, I thought you were going to say the the moment in front of the church holding the Bible. Uh, but uh, you, you some in the book, I mean, you that's some, another one. There was a lot of a lot of, <laughs> a lot he's, of now he's really dead. <laughs> <laughs> you sum it up really well. I want to I want to share this quote. Um, the, the state of the Republican Party, you say the Republican Party was born from abolitionism and Abraham Lincoln's fighting a war to keep the country together with an emancipation proclamation rooted in the considerate judgment of mankind and the gracious favor of almighty God. 
In 2020, the Republican Party was led by a man who had peaceful protesters in front of the White House tear gassed so that he could walk across a park to hold up a spare Bible in front of a church, scowling while saying nothing. Military helicopters, meanwhile, were buzzing protesters in the streets of Washington and unidentified troops were knocking down citizens. That was such an encapsulation of that moment. We should have hired you from the audio book, Corey. It was also critical days for, for Biden. He had to thread this needle of eschewing defund the police and denouncing rioters and looters while also at the same time empathizing with and identifying with our cause. I, I, that was um, uh, Sharpton's, yeah, the Sharpton's moment with him. So, wow, it really good stuff, man. I just have one more. I had one more question for you. Um, and that was kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation, Isaac, you talked about um, how Biden won and sort of threaded the needle, if I to borrow that phrase again, and how narrow the victory was and what led to that. Uh, Matt Lewis recently wrote a piece about his winning, about Biden's winning formula for the White House, quoting a Nate Cohn report in the New York Times saying Biden gained among men, even while making no ground, or according to Pew, losing ground among women. Lastly, Biden lost ground among nearly every Democratic-based constituency. Only his gains among moderate to conservative voting groups allowed him to prevail. So first off, do you agree with that thesis? And secondly, are Democrats missing the point going forward of how Biden built this coalition? Many of them are going further to the left. Look, one of the things that comes up in conversations about this book and about the election is like, well, could anybody else have won? Uh, And some people respond to it and say to me, no, I think only Biden could have won. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. And those hypotheticals are really tricky. Um, I will tell you that Bernie Sanders and people around him believe he would have won. Other folks do not believe that they would have won. Uh, I quote in the book uh, a friend of Kamala Harris who says, uh, after the riot, he says to me, uh, you know, I was really invested in the campaign and I was, uh, was really upsetting when she lost. Uh, but I'm so glad she wasn't the nominee because if she'd been the nominee, we would have lost and I would have had to throw myself off the Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> uh, so, um, you, you know, there's all these theories about what it is. What I will say is I, no one else could have put together the coalition that Biden did. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't another winning coalition out there, but the way that he won, um, the kinds of voters that he did appeal to, and the ones that he didn't lose, that's a Biden coalition. So does that mean no Democrats going forward can recreate that in your view? Well, so I think this is a big question going forward, right? Because uh, what we know is, and also I should say, a big part of that is running against Trump, right? And that was the the alternative and that drove a lot of people to Biden. In 2022, the midterms, for sure, Joe Biden and Donald Trump will not be on the ballot. Hopefully, for all of our sakes, uh, COVID will not be the kind of issue that it was in last year's election by November of next year, and that we'll continue (laughs) improving and not wearing masks and getting to normal life. Uh, I don't think we know what that looks like without Joe Biden drawing people. I mean, we talked about the the Ilhan Omar district, but all across the country, Mm -hmm. Biden ran ahead of other Democrats running for other offices. He got more votes. Uh, Again, a big piece of that is the anti-Trump vote. Um, what does Trump do as a factor? What, does he uh, weigh down Republicans? Is it that as happened in 2018 versus 2016 and 2020, 
when Trump is not on the ballot, his people just don't show up to vote um, in the kinds of numbers? We don't know. Now, then go back go on to 2024. Okay, well, then now we've got like 500,000 hypotheticals that are going to be built into this. But Joe Biden says he's running. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I will tell you from reporting that I've done, like it's not just something that he like says. He really is sure that he is running at this point. That, of course, may change. We don't know. Donald Trump seems to be saying that he's running. It's really hard to track where he is on any given day. And I'll leave it to other reporters <laughs> who are better sourced in Trump coverage to explain uh, what's going on there. But that means, and again, hopefully COVID will be a distant memory by then, but that means that maybe rematch. in 2024, we get to see a rematch for the first time since uh, 1956, right? Eisenhower and Stevenson. Um, <laughs> uh, or maybe only one of them will be on the ballot, or maybe neither of them will be on the ballot. And it's just a, you know, a big lesson that I took away from 2016 was to not get into the predictions game. I just think that we are, like in this case especially, there's so many variables at play. What does COVID look like by then? What does the economy yeah. look like? You know, do people respond to an economy that is getting stronger and say, hey, the economy is getting stronger? Do they respond to it and see that inflation is going on and say, oh, okay, it's costing me more? <sighs> Who knows? And who yeah. knows what else will emerge as issues. Uh, there is a quote in there uh, from uh, from Tom Hanks, the preeminent political scientist, um, <laughs> who, who uh, was doing a fundraiser for Biden uh, that was during that mostly virtual Democratic convention last year. And of course, Hanks is like the first big celebrity to get COVID and recovered. Uh, and he says... You know, with all these things going on and the, the health crisis and economic crisis, and this was after George Floyd was killed, so there were, uh, all that that crisis, that all of it was happening in an election year. Hank says, it, you know, it makes you have to nod that to maybe there's something bigger going on. Um, whether or not you agree with Hank's theology there, he is right that it is by chance that all of this happened in an election year. If COVID had hit a year earlier or a month earlier, a lot of things probably would have been different. If George Floyd, obviously, sadly, black men are killed pretty frequently by police, uh, but it was capturing Floyd's killing on uh, video that uh, that changed all of that. If So it could have been any other time that uh, a video like that came across and what would it have done? It's that it all came together in this way. You have some great quotes to open the chapters. One of my favorites was toward the end. If we are to have another contest in the near future of our national existence, I predict that the dividing line will not be Mason and Dixon's, but between patriotism and intelligence on the one side and superstition, ambition, and ignorance on the other. And that was Ulysses S. Grant. Incredible, right? How prescient. Uh, yeah, I mean, I tried uh, almost every quote to begin the chapters from a, a former president. That was on purpose. A couple of them are not because it just felt too fitting to do some of the others. But yeah. uh, that Grant quote, um, I had seen uh, that I'd seen after the riot and I uh, was really struck by it. And of course, uh, knew that I needed to include it. Yeah. Glad you did. It's better than the other one that was there. One of the things that we haven't, um, <laughs> uh, someday there'll be like a behind the scenes, you know, like we'll do the behind I the scenes. I think he's going to go for the screenplay, Corey. Absolutely. I think he's going to come up with some of your Hollywood brethren. Yeah. Uh, 
sounds like it would be easy to turn into a screenplay. My cousin uh, is the one who wrote, I don't know if you ever saw the one about Barack and Michelle Obama's first date. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so Richie is, is a, he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. That was his first, uh, was it his first film? But brilliant writer. I'm sure he, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to buy the book for him and I'm sure he's going to be all into this. So that'd be great. I've, yeah. I've been by, uh, it's. I believe it's not there anymore. I remember, but there, there's a marker at the Baskin Robbins where they went on that first date in okay. Chicago. Um, that was put there like when he was already president, obviously. But it's like in this spot, Barack yeah. and Michelle Obama found their love or whatever. But yeah. <laughs> now you're making me hungry for ice cream. See, <laughs> one of the things we haven't dived into, but I think that would re- require a whole other conversation, which is officially your, your invitation to come back sometime. sometime. Um, but we didn't get all at all into the lead up to the election, the election itself, Trump's actions since then, uh, you know, obviously what happened on January 6th. Um, but one, one, one last quote I want to share from the book, and then uh, we'll have a couple of wrap wrap up questions. You end the book by, and this isn't giving away the ending. This is just such a sweet moment. Um, as Barack said in Bo's eulogy, he was Joe 2.0. Biden said, and so I think Bo would have been proud. I pray he would have, that I never walked away from what I believed. Not a joke. I get up in the morning, go to bed at night thinking, I hope he's proud of me today. I hope he's proud. Just such from from beginning to end, and even the acknowledgments as you you you, you call it, you're on to me. Uh, just such a such a great Corey is thorough, great piece of work. What did we forget to ask you uh, for this first interview? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean that that quote was from that interview that I did with Biden. Yeah. It was on February second. Um, it was his first interview as president. I was over the phone because it was still heavy COVID restrictions. And he was in the Oval Office and. Uh, we talked about a lot of things around the phone for about 45 minutes. Um, and it was a really in-depth conversation. Um, I have had a lot of opportunity to talk to Biden over the years. He's always, if you ask him like, what's gonna happen with the infrastructure bill? He doesn't say everything that interesting. But if you ask him about things that are not like that and to just talk about it, he has a lot of thoughts, a lot of things. And I had just said to him in the conversation, you know, I, I, that I, he, I think he knew, but I reminded him that I had done a profile of Bo and had spent a little time with him in Delaware. Um, and I said, I know this is a hard question and I'm sorry to pry, but you know, it just is, it's obvious to me and I've written in the book already about how much Bo is there with you all the time and how he's just, you know, Biden in that debate, that first debate was, uh, there was a conspiracy theory that he was wearing some kind of microphone or listening device and it was Bo's rosary. rosary. When when, uh, Joe Biden is talking about that article, the suckers and losers article, he has a gold star. It's not a real gold star because Bo wasn't killed in combat, but that was given to him by the Delaware National Guard, Bo's old unit that he takes out of his pocket because he's he knows if he has it in his pocket where he keeps it every day, he would be too angry talking about it. Uh, I went, he went to Bo's grave on the morning of the election. Um, and I then went that afternoon to look at it and see what was there. And, and it's just like, everything is is about Bo to him, including, of course, Bo's real name was Joe Joseph R. Biden III, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, nonetheless a hard thing to say to any man, but especially at that point, the president of the United States, like, well, what about your dead son? <laughs> um, yeah. But I, you know, I tried to ask him in as respectful a way as I could. And he gave me that answer. Yeah, Corey, that's spoiler alert. That's the end of the book uh, <laughs> that you read. Um, but it really struck me in the moment. And then uh, like a good reporter, I made sure to download and transcribe the tape right away and had <laughs> right a transcription away. program. And I read the transcript over and I was like, I just kept on, I had a couple of friends that I was in touch with and my wife that as I was writing the book and were sounding boards on things. And I was like, just like, listen to this thing that Joe Biden said to me. Uh, and I remember that I sent it to one of my friends, I texted it to him. And then before he even wrote back, I was like, uh, that's the ending of the book, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, because it wraps up so much about who Joe Biden is and the relationship to Obama, which is so much a part of who he is and who, what was going on in his campaign and the relationship to Bo and how it all comes together and how he thinks of himself in this in the continuum there. Uh, that the nice thing as a reporter was... The book was supposed to have been done a couple of weeks before I did that interview. Um, I was uh, my contract said that I had to turn in the final uh, bit of the the draft by January fourth. Oh, um, and obviously there were some changes. Um, <laughs> the Georgia Senate race on the fifth, and then January sixth, of course. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, so the book what we uh, <laughs> I'm glad we did pushed everything back by about a month because uh, we needed to write through it and, and have all the reporting that's there. So the last 50 pages of it, which are about the riot and the aftermath and the inauguration uh, and that interview, were all, uh, it's, it, there would have been maybe like four pages about the inauguration stuffed in, but instead it's 50 pages. Um, it was all not even like, not on the proposal or the outline. They were not conceived of until after the book was supposed to be done. Uh, but the Biden interview, because of that, it <laughs> and because they kept on delaying it because he was like busy beginning to be president of the United States, it was a tough job. Um, and to find the window to have him talk to me uh, meant that the a lot of the rest of the book was already like moving well through the editing process. And I couldn't then go back and take parts of the interview and uh, pepper them through as maybe you would do with an interview with the president. <laughs> right. uh, but it, it like so perfectly landed because the story, the book does end up being among other things, the story of how the hell Joe Biden ended up in the Oval Office, yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, And then it ends with Joe Biden in the Oval Office talking about how crazy it was. Right. <laughs> and right. then I had, so everything, basically everything that you'd read to that point had been written before I interviewed Joe Biden uh, and that he was reflecting so much of what was there and what I'd been able to report was reassuring to me as a reporter that I was got it. getting it at least uh, close to right. Yeah, yeah, you got it. Uh, second to last question. Do you have any questions for us? <laughs> um, I don't know. I feel like we've gotten into so much here. I, the, the, um, I mean, I, 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 I wonder what you think and I, I haven't decided what I'm doing next year, uh, writing wise, but what, whether you think this is a complete story or whether you see this as uh, something that continues. I, I have thoughts about that, Jess, do you wanna? Yeah, I think, it, I, I think I'm, I'm fascinated by just the, 
the continuing evolution of how the Democratic Party works out these differences. I don't think it's over yet. And it may be even more challenging without a Biden in in four years, if that's what happens. So I, I think it's a good, you're well sourced on this beat. I would stay on it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we look back and we see, you know, that this cast of characters, they've uh, found their roles, uh, but it's a temporary equilibrium. You know, Kamala yeah. Harris, obviously the VP, Bernie, given some respect, you know, and, and a, the head of a, a, a very important committee in the Senate. Um, we mentioned Mayor Pete uh, is on, on the cabinet. Um, others went back to their roles in Congress. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see. We, we're already seeing the beginnings of how uh, different folks are emerging in their new roles. Um, but I think to fast forward to 2024, to your point, or certainly to 2028, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. I think the, um, the midterms in 2022 are going to be really, really critical. Yeah. Um, and it will, there's still a lot of unknowns before we hit that. We didn't even know, you know, are, are the Republicans going to gain three seats? Are they going to gain 12 seats just from redistrict redistricting is the historical pattern going to hold where, um, presidents in their first term lose uh, a couple dozen, if not more uh, seats. Um, I think that's a technical data point, not really. I think there are certain exceptions, uh, at least three since 1900. And I think this moment in time shares a lot in common with 1934 and uh, 1902 and 2002. And 62. 62. Oh, it was 62 as well? Yeah, it's after the, 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 uh, the, the most recent examples are 2002. Well, well, so, well, I'll do them in order. Franklin Roosevelt uh, during the Great Depression. Yeah. Kennedy in 62 um, gained seats. Um, and that's after the Cuban Missile Crisis in 2002. Okay. It was after 9-11, obviously, and everything going on there. Uh, the argument has been made to me uh, by senior Democrats um, in the House uh, that this, those were all crisis moments where the presidency responded in a strong way. And uh, perhaps <laughs> if the Democrats have what they're hoping for, uh, the same thing will happen this time around. But yeah. uh, certainly gerrymandering in history is against them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot of question marks. Um, but I also think a, there's a lot um, a lot of work that has to be done in terms of securing uh, voting rights. Uh, mm -hmm. So, yeah, a lot, lot more questions than answers. Um, but you know, as far as writing um, the, the next chapter to this story, uh, you, you, I think it's like a kind of like Star Wars or, or <laughs> you know, Lord of the Rings or something. I, I think there's at least a trilogy here. You, you have a lot of work to do. Uh, so, well, I mean, the Star Wars line. Hopefully the publisher I, I, agrees. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Um, but I have used the Star Wars line that for Democrats, like they can think that like, okay, they, they blew up the Death Star, that's it. But, mm. um, but you know, there was another Death Star. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> I mean, come on. Uh, so, yeah. all right, so last question, how can we find you and how can we find more information about Battle for the Soul? Uh, well, you can find me, I guess, on Twitter at Isaac Dover, two, one S, two A's. Uh, and Isaac, and the book is, uh, I guess I'm supposed to say, wherever you buy your books. There you go. Uh, whether it's your local bookstore or Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble or whatever else. Um, but uh, but it's all over the place. You can get the uh, 
Kindle version, you can get the hard copy, you can get the audio version, which is not read by me. It's read by somebody with a much nicer voice and uh, more skills. As, uh, if you listen, to, there are a lot of scenes of people talking back and forth. And he is a uh, an actor who, without doing impressions of the people, you yeah. really do feel the scenes come to life in ways that I would not have been able to do. I'm just the writer. Well, I want to audition for one of the parts. I haven't decided which part I want to audition for for the next one. But uh, I'll tell you, I I, I recorded a podcast with Andrew Yang for his podcast about this book, and he offered to play himself in the movie version of this. uh, (laughs) Cameo. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So I Jess, it's great to see you. Thanks for thanks for coming in today and uh, being the co-host with the most. And uh, Isaac, it was such a pleasure to get to know you better and really appreciate your time. Great work. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now I know where you go when I don't see you at the White House. You're out <laughs> sleuthing. Yeah, sleuthing. Uh, as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks again. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you've heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts, give us a five star rating, and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.